So we've invited Rex Rogers. He's the president of SAT7, Satellite 7. He'll be talking about that. And then afterwards, I want to encourage you to go to the gym, get his brochure. We're not going to spend a lot of time. He's not preaching about SAT7, but I want to encourage you to look at the power of satellite television in a part of the world that we're uncomfortable with. But uh, Rex will come, Dr. Rogers will come and share with us today what God's laid on his heart and encourage us to look at that part of the world. Uh, thank you, David. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, lodging with David and Carol these last two evenings and getting to know them better and talking ministry and missions and with David watching football. Great fun. That was a lot of fun. And uh, my team, Michigan State, won yesterday. And then, uh, uh, but we've been Packers fans forever, so uh, there it is. I've been to Lambeau and, you know, paid allegiance and so forth. But uh, at any rate, we've been very glad to be here and to be privileged to be here. Uh, I spoke with your friends last night in that service and in their service earlier this morning. Thoroughly enjoyed that. But Pastor said, wait till you get to the 11 o'clock hour. They're the smartest and the best looking of the bunch. <laughs> and now that I get up here, I can see that he was right. Uh, you can talk to him later how he figures that IQ thing out. But I am uh, representing Sat7, Satellite 7. Uh, I'm not the president of the group over there. I, I run the, the U.S. office, so to speak. And uh, Dr. Terry Ascot's the founder and CEO. It's based in Cyprus, and we broadcast throughout the Middle East and North Africa in Arabic and Farsi and Turkish. Christian programming, we're getting into places where you and I could not safely go uh, with the gospel and with the word of God. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a timely ministry. It's very important. It's been amazing to me to be involved with it the last six years. And to see what God's doing and how he's opening doors. We'll talk a little bit more about that here a little bit later. But we're not primarily here, as David said, to really talk about Sat7 as such, but to look at the Middle East and North Africa. And more specifically, to think about the people uh, who are there and to think a little bit about that region of the world. And uh, MENA is a way that we... That's right. Okay. Is it not on? No, you're good. Okay. But we need to release the children. Okay. So, so we're going to do Kids. that. Okay. <laughs> Throw the kids overboard. We're going to talk about Jonah later. Huh? Well, as that's happening, uh, when we talk about uh, the Middle East and North Africa, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, we refer to it as MENA. It's just an acronym, shorthand. If you've worked with other ministries, you may have heard, like Campus Crusade Now Crew where Jesus filmed some of those and other groups. They talk about Namistan, which is an interesting one. North Africa, Middle East, name, and the stand. Uh, stands refer to all the countries there of Afghanistan and Pakistan, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan and on and on and on stands. So how you find some way to refer to those regions. And we're talking about this region of the world, uh, partly because that's uh, Sat7's focus, but partly because that's what you hear about every night on the news. Uh, North Africa, of course, from Morocco to Egypt. Those are Arabic-speaking countries. Uh, by the way, those Arabic-speaking countries are as different as Germany and France. I say to you that they're different, and you say, well, duh, of course they are. The culture is different, language is different. Here they speak Arabic uh, and across that, but they're different culturally and sometimes don't like one another and sometimes don't really understand one another. And, you know, we do that across the English world, too, the English-speaking world. We're different from our friends in England or Australia, uh, even in Canada. You know, we go out and about. They go oot and boot. But however we do it... Um, <laughs> You know, we're different. We're different culturally. 
and they are very different, sometimes dramatically so. We need to understand that and know that because on, uh, in our shorthand, and when you hear it on the news, it's like Middle East, and it's all that just thrown in together, and we get that kind of a focus like that, understandably, but uh, we need to understand that it's more complex than that, and certainly for our folks who are working there as Christian workers. But that's the Middle East. You look at the Arabian Peninsula, uh, the Persian Gulf states, the traditional Middle East, the focus there. Uh, on up into what's called Central Asia or, or Central Far East now or whatever you call it, Turkey, uh, where East meets West, and it still does today. And then Iran. Uh, Iran is a separate country and a different focus there. They speak Farsi, not Arabic. They're not Arabs. They're Persian. And they're just as proud, if not more so, of their ethnic and national heritage as you are of yours. Uh, and they don't want to be called Arabs. Uh, they want to be different. And speaking a different language makes them even more so. And Iran's a fascinating country, and of course, we're in the news a lot with, with, with what's happening there. I like to talk about Iran because I think I find it fascinating demographically. It's about a nation of maybe 75, 78 million people, and 65%, 65% of that population are now under the age of 35. 65% under the age of 35. That's almost exact upside down backwards of what the United States is. We've got 335 million or 340, something like that. In the United States, we're an aging population, baby boomers, my age bracket. We're having fewer kids. Uh, that's, and they're having more kids, and there's been a youth bulge and a great birth rate. It's slowing down a little bit, but the Middle East, North Africa, including in Iran, of what's taking place there. Uh, Europe, Europe is even way back. I mean, they're really upside down in terms of their uh, extremely low to minimal birth rate. I think they forgot how to have babies over there or make them, but nevertheless, they are looking at uh, the refugees in terms of the future of what's, what's Europe. You know, what, what does it mean to be European? What's it mean to be French or German or what have you? And so it's really an interesting challenge. It's, not, it's much more than an academic question. But back to Iran, 65% under the age of 35. And you think, well, so what? That's interesting uh, in itself. Yeah, but think about it some more. Uh, this group, it uh, looks like there's a number of you that uh, are a little older. You say, how do you know that? I don't know. I'm just kind of guessing. Uh, <laughs> you, you remember... You remember, as I do, this 1979 when Ayatollah Khomeini came in there from France and landed there and the Islamic Revolution took place. Uh, our, our own Americans captive in the embassy for 300 and whatever days that was and, and put Ted Koppel on the map and put, uh, maybe put Reagan in the office, I don't know, Jimmy Carter out of the office. All those things were taking place at that time. And uh, the Islamic Revolution took place. That was 1979. That's 36 years ago. 65% under the age of 35. 65% of that population can't remember the Shah any more than I can remember FDR. You know, great historical figure. I know he existed, but, you know, pictures and tapes, and that's it for me. Uh, they don't remember that. They never lived under that. They don't have any personal emotional relationship with the Shah. All they've ever known, and here's the real point, of religion is religion used as a tool to power because that's what it's about for the supreme leader, for the mullahs, and what's going on with the leadership there, whether it's Ahmadinejad earlier with his outrageous statements and, and, and posturing, or whether it's Rouhani with his different style and what's going on in the controversial agreement politically and whatnot, and we'll get into politics with the West. But uh, they're hungry, they're open. And when you see religion used like that, there's a disillusionment taking place today that's opening hearts in Iran, so much so that they're churning and they're looking for something else. And there's primarily three things growing in replace of that. In, in Iran, and it's not Islam, and one of those is what the preachers used to call when I was a kid, at least, uh, worldliness, you know, hedonism and promiscuity and drugs and alcohol and all the rest, and women who get caught in that are even always, as always, second, third, and fourth greater impact of what takes place in those kinds of things. 
that's going on, even though Iran has one of the higher, higher uh, literacy rates uh, among women in the general population, still they don't have access to power. Uh, and, and this promiscuity, I mean, it's this growing uh, worldliness, uh, that whole kind of like trying to fill the hole in your heart and it never works. Uh, it's kind of the Hollywood approach and it just deadens people, you know. But they're looking for hope. They're looking for something. Or they're turning to something called Zoroastrianism. You think, what is the world of that? That's an old Persian religion. And because it's Persian, and because it's old, and because it's theirs, and by the way, they do a lot of poetry. They love poetry. The Iranians love poetry. And that, so do Russians. But they love poetry. And as they get down into that, it's theirs. And they've embraced that, looking for something that, you know, a religion that works, that meets the need, the hole in their heart. Or they're turning to Christ and Christianity, and the church, capital C, is growing. The body of Christ is growing in Iran, and missiologists are telling us it's growing faster in Iran than perhaps and probably any nation of the world, including in China and some of the other places that you've heard about where it's growing. In the Arab world, it's growing in Algeria. Algeria there on the, on the left in the purple. Algeria physically, uh, in terms of square miles, is the largest country in Africa now that Sudan split up a few years ago. But uh, the church is growing rapidly there. And you say, well, what do you mean the church? Well, I mean house churches. Uh, I, I, I mean uh, 12 people meeting in someone's home and singing in whispers and turning on Sat7 or some other Christian channel to try to get some connection with the body of Christ beyond uh, who and what they are there, trying to get teaching. They don't have pastors. They don't have enough people to teach them the word of God. They may never have seen a Bible. They may never have had access to it. They may never have met another Christian outside of their limited circle there, or maybe they've never met another Christian at all if they've come to Christ through some means of connection with media or the word of God as opposed to a person. And that's what's happening throughout the Middle East. There are Christians, you should know and think about that. This, yes, 98% Muslim, but there are Christians in every one of those countries. There's the church in every one of those countries. God is in every one of those countries. Okay? Not Allah, but God. God. By the way, Allah is just an Arabic word for God. You know, all my Arabic friends who are Christians pray, when they pray in Arabic, use the word Allah when they talk about who God is. It's not uniquely uh, Islamic or whatever. It predates that. It goes way back. But nevertheless, uh, Allah, as represented by the Quran and Islam, is not the God of Scripture, something totally, in terms of character, totally different. So you look at this, and you look, and you think, okay, it's growing. The church is growing. Christians are there. There are churches there. There are physical churches uh, where they're more public in places like you know, Alexandria, Cairo, uh, uh, Lebanon, uh, a little bit in Turkey, some of the other countries where people can go publicly and worship. Uh, there is a national evangelical church right there in the middle of Cairo. I've been to near the Nile, near, to, uh, near Tahrir Square. That's a thriving evangelical church community, and openly so. But you look at this, it's different. And, and yet, even in Egypt, there have been churches burned in Alexandria. And the Christians came out afterwards, linked hands sometimes, by the way, with some of their Muslim friends, and spoke and said, we don't hate the people who did this. We forgive you. And, you know, the issue of testimony is enormous that takes place in the face of that. The Christian community in and throughout all the Middle East, MENA, uh, are, are suppressed, in some cases persecuted, uh, but amazingly resilient in their faith. And concerned about uh, not a brain drain so much as just a, a vibrancy brain of, of people leaving. As, as people die in a church, we all, you know, come to that point in our, our life cycle. But uh, they're leaving, you know, immigrating. So uh, I know a pastor who is the pastor of the National Evangelical Church of Beirut. It's about a block from Parliament, a beautiful church that survived the Civil War in the 90s, physically survived and still there. And 
the pastor uh, saw that. He's a few years older than I am, and, and, he, and he talks about, Rex, he said, I do, I do funerals. Sure, as any pastor does, he said, but my greatest concern is I lose, I lose families just about every month who, who finally have found a way through their language skills or their money or their education or their friend contacts or family or something to finally leave, to finally to immigrate somewhere else. And we try to encourage them to stay and to invest in the church here. On the other hand, it's hard, hard to verbally you know, throw a rock at them or mostly be critical of them. If you could leave in those circumstances, you probably would too. What, what is an immigrant, by the way? And what is an immigrant? There's so much controversy around that word in the United States in a different context. But an immigrant is just somebody looking for a better life. Okay? It's just a human being looking for a better life. And I know there's, there's the criminal element and there's this and that. But aside from that part, most of the immigrants... Your predecessors and mine. We're a nation of immigrants, okay? How did we end up here? How did you end up in Wisconsin? You're thinking, well, I've been trying to figure that out all my life. But um, <laughs> you, ha- you had predecessors back there. We, we were proud of the Oregon Trail and that whole part of our culture and whatnot. Uh, every, I was talking to a gentleman between the service who has a, a relationship with an Iranian gentleman here in the Wisconsin area. I don't know where. But the fellow has an fant- unbelievable story of how he got his family out of Iran and into Canada, and eventually and now he is an American citizen. He's working here in Wisconsin. He has his own Oregon Trail experience, so to speak, okay? Uh, he's not a believer, but he's asking questions. He's not Muslim, but he's asking questions. And uh, that's, that's not all an immigrant is. It's a human being. All a Muslim is is a human being. There's two kinds of people spiritually in the world, two kinds of people. Sinners saved by grace, hopefully that's you, me. Sinners in need of grace. Okay? Nazis were human beings. Why were they so evil? Because sin had gotten so deeply into the heart of their leaders and to some extent those below that, and they were followed it. What's ISIS? Human being. Scary, horrible, awful, evil, murderers, human beings. Made in the image of God. People Christ died for. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard to process this stuff. This You look at the Middle East and North Africa, and we think a couple more things, and we'll get off this slide, and that is this, that this is an area that's 50% illiteracy rate. Now, not every country, not every city, it's higher, better literacy rates in places like uh, Turkey, Iran, uh, Cairo, Lebanon, but uh, some of those countries, and the more rural they are, and the more, uh, more among women, even worse, it's Ill, high illiteracy rates, average age 50%, or average illiteracy rate 50%. That means they can't read a Bible if you gave them one. They can't read the front page of their own newspaper. They can't fill out a job application. They're not dumb. They may be running successful businesses or something in terms of their lives and culture. They just never had the privilege of organized education as you and I did. But they can't read a word of God. That's why TV is so important, satellite television. And why to speak to them in terms of Christian truth that way is, is a way to get to them. And by the way, as a side point, you can't uh, really uh, block or jam or censor satellite television. You can't stop it. It goes right, right to the set, you know, right to the privacy of your own home. It's pretty amazing. So if you look at this, this is an area of the world where there's 1% of the world's Bibles. 1% of the world's Bibles. We get requests at Sat7 all the time, send me the Word of God, send me Bibles, send me somehow. They can't get online and order one from Amazon.com or some other .com because uh, they're illiterate. Or even if they weren't illiterate, they don't have the credit card. Kind of, a lot of those countries, that credit card access is very controlled, restrictive, the, the currency issues. They, they just don't have access to the Word of God, Christian resources. They don't have a Christian bookstore down on the corner they can go to. Uh, they don't 
have and turn on their radio and get 24 hours a day their favorite preacher. It just, it just isn't there. And so they're so hungry for some kind of access. 1% of the world's Bibles in that region. One-tenth of 1% one of the world's missions money ends up in the Middle East. One-tenth of 1% one of all the money that we, you, I, we give to missions somehow ends up with missions in the Middle East. I think that's the worst statistic. Okay, and We're losing by default. Now we say, well, it's because they're closed countries. I agree. They're socially, politically, they're closed countries. You refer to that. But remind you that from the perspective of a sovereign God, from a perspective of a sovereign God, there's no such thing as a closed country. There's really no such thing as a closed heart, you know, from the perspective of a sovereign God. Paul was chief of sinners, right? Saul, chief of sinners, and God spoke to him, God reached him. There's nobody, no addiction, no person that's beyond the reach uh, of the Spirit of God. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're ISIS. Okay. Now, Language, let's just give you a little quick feel. Uh, that's the Arabic-speaking countries, and then here's the Farsi, it's the Persian. Farsi and Persian means the same thing. Iran there in the middle, uh, and then the Turkish-speaking countries. Those are the three dominant languages of the Middle East, lots of other languages. Sometimes with Sat7, they say, why don't you broadcast all of Africa? Well, you know, we broadcast in Arabic, Farsi, and Turkish, and they don't speak that down in the Congo, you know? So why broadcast there that? We, we broadcast this is our area. So we cover all of Europe. You say, well, why broadcast Arabic in Europe? Lots of people there now uh, who speak that language and can tune into their own heart and home language. So those are the languages. Just want to give you a little feel. I want to talk about filters for a moment because I think this is really important. I call them filters. This is kind of the way we look as Westerners, Americans, at the Middle East, North Africa. You say, what is this, Rogers? What do you got to do with all this? Is it politics? No, it's not politics. I mean, it is politics. Everything's politics. But what we're talking about here eventually gets around to the Great Commission. It gets, it gets around to Christian worldview. It gets around to you and I and who, who are we. It gets around to Jesus with the woman at the well who is Samaritan, uh, Samaria, and people saying, why did you talk to this other person, this person of a different ilk and background? And you know, like, like why, why were you there? People say that about Jesus, this guy from Nazareth. Isn't he from, isn't he a Nazareth? I mean, he, he's a suspect by definition before they even got to know who, who he is. So, you know, we, we have all kinds of ways we do when we ask this. We have filters, and, and they're quite human things, okay? They're, they're not just, if you find yourself here, it doesn't mean that you've committed the worst sin. It, uh, maybe you're into that, but uh, it, it doesn't mean we're human beings. I mean, there's wars, right? Wars and rumors of wars. I'm always a conscious, speaking in a church or a place of this size, that you may have had young men and women in harm's way. I hope they've come home safe, sound, and soon, but not all of them have. I'm very conscious of that. And whatever this church's experience has been, or this community at large experience has been with the various wars in the Middle East up till now, we had a son, Sarah and I, we have a son who spent 11 months in Iraq during the Iraq war and came home safely. So, you know, it affects how we look at that part of the world and how we think about those people, okay? And as you begin to think about that, we've got plenty of those things going on. Wars are still going on. Then there's this almost worse thing, terrorism, because it can strike anywhere at any time. 9-11, we've never gotten over that, and we won't. That has affected the psyche of the American people. Uh, and we get reminders of this, right, from time to time. Ankara, Turkey, the capital of Turkey over the weekend. Suicide bombers, apparently. I haven't read more. Maybe they've figured out something different by now. But uh, people killed. Innocent people killed. They were, they were having a peace rally is where this went off. A peace rally, if that's not a statement. Terrorism. And terrorism that strikes in here 
And we don't always know whether it's random killers and somebody in the United States who just has got twisted nature on their heart and they're so angry that this sort of rage that they, they want to go out in a, in a way that kills and takes as many people with them as possible because it's the only way they can say, I'm, I'm here. I mean, it's, it's sad. And the news media, obviously, and the news media talks about psychology. Uh, they rarely ever, I don't haven't heard them talking about sin, okay? Wrong choices, if not the young man who just committed this act, but, you know, along the way in his life, what's happened to him and, and with him and all those things. But it's happening in churches and malls and I mean, it, it happened in Wisconsin a few years ago, right? And in a church setting. I mean, these, these are scary things. But terrorism is some, and, and we know that not all 1.2 billion Muslims in the world are terrorists. But so far, it would appear that those who have identified as actually terrorists, who have claimed to be terrorists, have been Muslims, radical Muslims. So there's that connection. It's easy to make that logic or illogical jump to think that, well, all those Muslims are terrorists. Or they're all out to get us. That's just a human, natural reaction. You'd be forgiven if you weren't human, you know, and didn't feel that way. I have felt that way. Anybody has. Terrorism is one of those filters. It creates fear and anxiety and concern on our part. As we look at that part of the world, there are different people. You can do that here. It doesn't have to be over there. But we're all uncomfortable at some level with people different from ourselves. If we're honest in our heart of hearts. Now, our, our missionary friends here, I mean, they're fantastic people. They're called. They get past this because they just have a different calling and heart, and they thrive in places around people different from themselves. And others do, too, because they're cosmopolitan in their attitudes and nature. And I kind of try to come back and look at If you're walking in the woods and, you're, and, and, and all the trees are just only one kind of tree, they're all apple trees. That'd be cool for about five minutes, Okay. And then it would be boring, right? Or it would be, what, why, God, did you give us all apple trees? No, he gave us richness and variety and all of this. And I kind of joke and say, ladies, what if every guy looked alike? Every man looks alike. And you say, what would be so bad if I got to choose which guy it was? <laughs> which model? <laughs> well, that would get old, too, after about an hour, okay? They all look alike. No, no, God has given us this incredible richness and variety even within our own population, our own, whatever, whatever our own is. Uh, but certainly beyond that, with different races and ethnicities in the world, there's a beauty in that, in God's creation. All made in the image of God. All created in his image. All loved by him. All Christ died on the cross for every one of them. But you and I, as human beings, get uncomfortable, to be honest, when we're around sometimes people different from ourselves. And then you get a little deeper, you can get into ugly things like bias and a little deeper prejudice and racism and you know you get way down that's just sin it's just satan taking and twisting our hearts in division uh rapid growth of the muslim populations of the world it's like this giant juggernaut that's going to take over how do you stop they're going to islamization of europe they're going to come and take over okay that's that's out there that population growth is slowing but it, it's there and it's just is part of you know study demographics you think about it Refugees uh, now and what's taking place in Europe and internally displaced people. You know the difference. An internally displaced person is someone who's been forced out of their home, but they haven't crossed their international boundary. Okay? They're still in Syria. They're an IDP. Or they're still in Iraq. As soon as they cross the boundary, they're a refugee. Practically speaking, they face the same problems, right? They're living in camps. Uh, it's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, there have been 3,100 people, as far as we know, plus die on the Mediterranean Sea trying to get away uh, from these different places. 60-some percent have been from Syria. 
others from Iraq, and the rest from various countries in Africa going into Europe. That's about 5%, by the way, of the total refugee crisis in the Middle East, North Africa, of what's taking place, the 800,000, they think, by the end of the year in Europe. The other 95% are in worse off situations or just as bad. Uh, the Persian Gulf states have taken zero people. That's interesting. Zero. You know, we're kind of beating up on Europe and the West to take more, and maybe we should, and we all need to be interacting with all this, and how do we do this? These are human beings. You can't just leave them out there somehow. Uh, they need to be helped. And better yet, the source of all this needs to be taken care of and cared for, which is the Syrian civil war. But this is a huge deal, and it affects, again, how we look at the Middle East. That's the point of all this, these filters. It affects how you and I process the Great Commission or how we process... Hey, guys, there we go. Okay. Uh, thinking about ministry and connecting with people, in particular, Middle Eastern people, most of whom are Muslim. Theological tenets of Islam. I'm a Christian. I believe in the, the, the theology as taught by the Word of God, and it's here. I don't believe in the theology of Islam. Okay? So I have this difference of attitude and approach as I, as I think about it. Uh, that's understandable again. So you kind of, sometimes you pull back. Some of us like to engage academically, but maybe you pull back. And then there's Israel. I put that there just to get us to think for a second or two. Uh, we are rightly told in the scripture to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are rightly taught in, in, in about scripture that the Jews are God's chosen people, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Sometimes, though, we forget that it says also to the Greek. Okay? Peter had to learn that. And then he had to share that with the rest of the apostles. Apostle Paul is the one who took to the Gentiles. You know, if he hadn't, you and I, where would we be today in terms of the gospel? Most of us, I assume, in here. But nevertheless, as you start thinking about that, uh, we care about the Jewish people. We care about the safety and protection and preservation of the Jewish people. But I've heard television preachers, that, as when they talk and they get rolling on their pro-Israel stance, if they're not anti-Arab, boy, they sound like it. And some of them are, frankly, anti-Arab. And I think, well, where do you get that in Scripture? In your zeal to embrace and protect and pray rightly, rightly, for the Jewish people and in the nation state of Israel and in its insecurity in that part of the world, why does that give you license then to have a, have a despicable attitude or a despising attitude or a hatred attitude, if it's not hatred, or a rejecting attitude? No, no, no. Arabs are people. <laughs> you know, think about it. I mean, Arabs are people. Turks are people. Persians are people. As I said, in the worst case kind of examples of ISIS or groups like that, they're just people. So when you think about that and you think about Israel, our love for Israel, our embrace of Israel, our respect for Israel, our pray for Israel, shouldn't lead us to then push away and reject concern for Palestinians. Palestinians are just people. If you think it's hard to be a Palestinian living in the Holy Land and no two-state solution or whatever your politics and all that stuff, be a Palestinian Christian living there. I was with some of them in March. I was there, and I saw the West Bank barrier wall for my first time there. I was in the West Bank, and we interacted with these wonderful believers, and they talked about the struggles in their practical way of their lives, just as human beings and their families, of having enough water and having being, you know, not being able to cross the checkpoint uh, you know, 500 yards away. Um, and then others from their background doing awful things, as has happened in the last week. Uh, so we just have to process these things in a way that we have to think about that. I put this up to think about this in a way of different perspectives. Some of you are seeing a couple of faces. Some of you are seeing a vase. 
And it depends on your perspective is the whole point of that little illustration. And I want to kind of step away from this for a second and come back and think about the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah. Now, if you've been in church, this is your first time in church in your life, probably you've heard of Jonah, okay? That's the beauty of the story. There's only four chapters in that book. If you haven't read it in a long time, read it this afternoon. Uh, Jonah, you know the story. God comes along and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim my glory, and I want you to tell them about me. And Jonah makes his first mistake by thinking bad thoughts in his heart about the Ninevites. And instead of going to God and saying, God, change my perspective, you know, God, take this from me. I can't handle it. Help me. Now he makes a second mistake, and he runs from God. That's a joke. But he runs from God, right? And we've probably all done that. So he gets on a ship at Tarshish. He goes out. You know the story. He's out on the sea. Big storm comes, and the guys on the ship are scared. They're praying to their gods, and he hears them. And somehow Jonah finally, in some kind of compassion or something, says, Guys, guys, it's me. It's me. I'm at fault. Throw me overboard. And you'll be safe. And the guys at that point were so desperate, they were happy to oblige. So over, over he goes, okay, into the drink. And then calm, peace. And Jonah drowned. That was the end of the story. No, that's not the end of the story. You know the story. Big fish, big whale, some kind of big fish comes along, swallows him. Have no idea. We don't know whether he knew what happened to him or whether he was just some icky place but realized he was alive and called out to God. And for three days and nights in the belly of the whale, that's what he did. Remember the story? Fascinating as a kid to read this story. Fascinating as an adult. I mean, this isn't Spider-Man. This really happened, okay? And so you're looking at this, and finally God hears, and he interacts and he, with the fish, and God says to the fish, look, I want you to burp Jonah up and, and get rid of him. And so Jonah, uh, the fish did, and he did out in the middle of the Mediterranean, and then Jonah drowned at that point. No, no, no. The fish, somehow, God had told him, he swims all the way back, conveniently near Nineveh, and, uh, you know, burps up Jonah where he can get to or is actually on dry land. I always hope the fish lived. It's not in the story. But he burps him up. And Jonah, obviously, it doesn't say, but I'm thinking he calls out to God and praises God. And then he takes a shower. Okay. Uh, and then he finally does what he's supposed to do. Even if under duress and still under protest, he goes to Nineveh. He proclaims God's glory. And the Ninevites respond. And Jonah gets ticked off at God about that. He's a preacher who got a great response and didn't like the response. What kind of preacher is that? Okay? It's like you're a business person. You say, I started a business, but I don't want to make any money. And when I do, I'm going to be upset about it. Oh, what are you doing? No. But Jonah, Jonah, that's what he did. And in the fourth chapter, remember, there's still another object lesson with the vine. I won't get into all that. And finally, there's this. It came to all that to this. Here's Jonah. Jonah says, and God says this in the last verse. He says, Nineveh. Talking to Jonah, this is God talking to Jonah. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. What's that? Little kids, babies, you know? There's, there's 120,000 people there who are that little, that young. So the Bible scholars, historians, they extrapolate from that, you know, the Bible mathematicians or whatever, and they come up and say, hey, look, there may be 500,000, 600,000, 700,000 people in, in Nineveh. That's a pretty sizable city today, but certainly at that, at that era, that time. It's a big city. So God points that out. And God says also, and many cattle as well, by the way. Why did he say that? I, you know, I always wonder, why did he put that in there? Like, who cares about cows? God does. Why? Because he created them for a purpose, and you don't just wipe them out for no reason. You know, They, they have a reason for their existence. You take care of them. And you're a blessing from God. There are many cattle. Then, here, the last verse, in the last chapter, the last verse, you know, the last sentence in the book of Jonah says this. It's a question. 
And God says to Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? After all that, Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? Don't you wish you had the audio of Scripture? Did God shout that? Did he say that in a kind of kindly, grandfatherly way? Uh, did he say that? I think Jonah, you know, kind of a stern way. I don't know. But he said, should I not be concerned about that great city? Basically, what he's saying, Jonah says, you got a pile of filters. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because, why? I mean, he didn't like them. He had a history. His people had a history with these people. They're scary. Jonah was, in modern terms, Jonah was biased. He was prejudiced. Maybe he was even racist. Maybe he was a hater. I don't know. But he, didn't want, he, didn't, he just wanted to nuke them. All right? God, just get rid of these people. If you just nuke them, the world would be a better place. Well, you know, again, have we ever felt like that? Just, just nuke them. Just nuke the whole Middle East. We'd be better off. Or at least nuke ISIS. Well, if you know, if you want to be pretty blunt about it, that's exactly what we criticize ISIS for doing. Who's ISIS? A bunch of murderers, killers. They want to kill you for no particular reason other than their worldview. Well, we don't want to get that in reaction. But as human beings, it's easy to feel those things. And yet, God says, how shall I not be concerned about so to great a region? How can I be, not be concerned about this? Now, there's another way of looking at this, or move this along, of thinking about, you say, well, we can be concerned about him, but there's no way that Muslims come to Christ. Okay, let's think about that. As a scholar, I'll give you his name in a second, and that map down at the bottom, some of you know about the 1040 window, and the western part of the 1040 window there is where uh, Middle East and North Africa are located, right smack in the middle of that. The scholar looks at this over all the centuries since Islam started, and he defined a movement to Christ as at least a 1,000 baptized believers in some kind of organized fellowship. And so he looks at the first few centuries right after Islam got started, and he found one documentable evidence of a movement to Christ, just one. He said, well, it's only 1,000 people. Yeah, there's that. Then he looks at these other centuries, none during these centuries, and next, two during the, those centuries. 1800s, the 1800s, he found two bona fide, documented Muslims, or documentable, movements to Christ. Gets to the 20th century, wow, 11, 11. And finally, our era, the 21st century, it says last 13 years, because the book came out in 2014, uh, 69 movements to Christ. You say, well, that, you know, 69 times 1,000, it's only 69,000 people. Well, it's that plus... But the point is, it is dramatically different than any of the centuries before. And he was looking worldwide, looking at Southeast Asia, as well as mentally, uh, that's the, the various houses of Islam. It's Dr. David Garrison, I heard him speak recently, a wind in the house of Islam. The spirit of God moving through Dar es Salaam, the spirit of God moving through the houses of Islam as they define themselves. And that there are people opening stone. There are people like those, especially young people in Iran, who have had it up to here, disillusioned with religion as a tool to power, they're looking for something, a religion that works. There are people, all ages, but especially younger ones, across the Middle East and the Arab countries who are looking at ISIS and saying, what is this? How can Muslims be killing Muslims? Because ISIS has killed more Muslims than Christians. 
They've killed Christians, absolutely, and they've made high-profile statements out of it. Awful, awful, terrible. But they're killed, they've actually killed more Muslims. And other Muslims across the Middle East have seen this and said, what does this mean? How can in the name of our God and our religion, Muslims be killing Muslims? And it's creating a disillusionment in their heart and an openness to look for alternatives like never before. They're hungry. They're searching. And in various places, there's been opportunities to respond through the witness of Christian workers in those various countries or through things like satellite Christian television or whatever else other God chooses to use. It's an amazing time to be alive and an amazing time to think about reaching Muslims. I think, I can't prove this, but I believe that the greatest single challenge of the evangelical church, the Christian church, the body of Christ, including us, at the beginning now, the early 21st century, our greatest challenge is learning how to minister to Muslims abroad and increasingly at home. And we have experts among us. Maybe in this room we've got a few. I know we do. But most of us don't have a clue. And most of us have a lot of the, that's what we're finding as we travel across the states and, and speak in various churches and play, is we've got a lot of these filters that are getting kind of messed up. They mess us up. And we get out there so far and like, uh, forget that. You know, Lord, you know, it's like, remember WWJD, what did Jesus do? And then you got uh, WDJD, what did Jonah do? <laughs> Jonah, uh, I'm going to be a Jonah. No, you don't want to be a Jonah. There's no record in scripture, by the way, Jonah ever changed his mind. It's like you hope the fish lived, you hope he changed his mind. Uh, and perhaps he did, finally, that question. Finally, it was a zinger that got to him. I don't know. But you look at this kind of thing, and God has this incredible story in Scripture of this reluctant evangelist, okay? <laughs> and God still worked despite himself. God works despite me, in spite of us, you know, any of us. Well, you look at this, this challenge. That why is this movement happening? Well, there's been prayer movements. There are organized prayer movements of various kinds around, especially in the West, that are aiming at the 1040 window and aiming at these uh, the Muslims specifically and praying on a regular basis for Muslims to come to Christ. They are. You can find those in various groups online. There's God working in usual and unusual ways. There's traditional missions, meaning Christian workers. We all almost don't use the word missionary anymore uh, for varieties of reasons. But there are Christian workers in all of those Middle East, North African countries, and some of them at risk. Some of them certainly at personal risk. Okay. Many of them are doing business as missions. They're doing something there. They're pursuing, and they have a bona fide profession, but they're there as tent makers or whatever you want to call it, business and mission, where they're there. And in addition to whatever else they're doing, they're connecting and building relationships, and they're bringing people face-to-face uh, -face with Christ. Um, we need that. We need that more than ever before. There are non-traditional, unusual ways, things like visions and dreams. I come from a theological background where we never really talked a lot about visions and dreams, and we're suspect if people did. But I have really rethought that in my time with Sat7s. I've seen, we, we, get, we get feedback every week, okay? Every day almost, certainly every week, from people who say, I had a vision, I had a dream, I've had one, the same dream for five years, I had the same dream five times one night, all different kinds and versions of it. We had time, we tell you some of the stories. And what brings me great comfort is they don't call up and say, I had a dream and, be, and now I'm a Christian. They don't say that. Very rarely. In fact, Tom Doyle's book, recommend that book to you, Tom Doyle. Uh, right, he tells lots of great stories because he ministered in that part of the world. But right in the middle of the book, he stops and he said, let's talk theology. <laughs> you know, he's talking right to me. 
And a couple of chapters, he says, look, and one of his little sound bites, pithy comment, I think it's so great. He said, look, you don't go to sleep at night a Muslim, have a dream, and wake up a Christian. That's not how the New Testament says you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and become born again. That's not what happens. And that's not what he's advocating. That's not what I'm advocating. It's not what our call-in, our, our viewers are saying. They're saying, I saw a man in white. They're saying, I saw a man who said he was Jesus and said, follow me, look for me. I saw a man who said, go and look for believers. Go and look for a church. Learn more about me. I saw someone who said that your life is in danger. Get out of the house. And when I did, and then I found out that the gas was leaking in the house and it would have exploded. And, you know, Daddy, did you pray for him? And Daddy did pray for some kind of protection of his daughter. And then later the whole family comes to Christ. That's a true story from Iran. When you think about those things, it's constant. God is working in a sovereign way in that part of the world, I think, through dreams and visions, in a way he typically chooses not to work, I believe, in the United States and in the West, because we have umpity five ways we can learn about who God is. You know? We have churches within a few miles, Bible-believing, and we have all the other resources available. They have none of that. So that's one unusual way. Another unusual way, of course, satellite television media, where you're beaming directly in, and you're reaching. In that part of the world, in the, in the Middle East, North Africa, um, satellite television, once you get the TV and the little box and hook up to the satellite, it's free to air. It's called FTA. Free. They don't pay a monthly fee like you and I do for direct TV or cable or one of those. It's free. So just like that, they got 600 Arabic channels. And Sat7 is among them. Three of our Arabic channels with kids' channels. Uh, or they've got three or four 350, 400 almost, uh, Farsi language channels, Sets of Pars is, is, is in the midst of it. And they can get it, right? And now Sets of Inter. They can get it, and it broadcasts all over those areas. So, and you can't, you, can't, you can't censor it, as I said earlier. I mean, once in a while in Iran or Saudi Arabia, they go around and they bash up satellites. And that's about the only way you can stop satellite television. You, can't, you can censor Internet. Okay? Turkey... Once in a while, they, they don't get ticked off at Twitter and <laughs> they turn it off, okay? Uh, they, they can do those things in very th- but, uh, with Internet. But you can't, and the Internet, by the way, presumes literacy. So only a certain number of people can use Internet, even if you have it. And it's very sketchy in those countries. But you can't do that with satellite television. It's coming down. It's just virtually impossible. I won't get into all the reasons why. And so you can get it in the privacy and security of your own home, whether it's a palace of the Petro dollar princesses in Arabia, or whether it's a Bedouin tent, and by the way, the Bedouins still exist, and they still have camels, and they have satellite dishes on their tents with their camels. And by the way, not all Bedouins are poor, okay? Some of them, not all Bedouins are poor, but they do as a people still exist. They just choose the lifestyle. It's like gypsies still exist in certain parts of the world. So satellite media has this incredible ability to reach people that it's an unusual way that God's working. Well, you know, if you haven't traveled, that's what satellite dishes look like in some of those places. Uh, that's our coverage footprint, so I won't get into all that. See, we cover all of Europe. And then I wanted to just end up with this one thing here. This one's, God loves Gentiles, he loves Middle Easterners, he loves Muslims, right? And he says that in scripture. Uh, Islam and Muslims not the same. When I, when I say something negative, I try to school myself to say something. If I'm going to critique, to talk about Islam, it's a religion theological system, a political ideology with which I disagree. And at least from a Western perspective, it's okay to disagree and you interact and, you know, you critique and, you know, okay, fine. 
Uh, but Muslims, I try not to do what is so easy to do as you hear on the news all the time. Muslim becomes an interchangeable word with bad guys. And there are bad guys in the world. We do need TSA. There's a reason for those things. Okay. And I, I said in one of the other hours, I mean, I happen to have a doctorate in political science. I like government and politics. used to teach it and all that. Spent 34 years in Christian higher ed. But I don't believe, and I'm not a pacifist. I respect those who are. I've read their writings and enjoy that interaction. But I just haven't been able to get there. And one of the reasons I look back to World War II and, and the wonderful phrase, the greatest generation. What a great phrase. The greatest generation. If they hadn't done what they did, where would we be today? If they hadn't sacrificed the way they sacrificed, where would we be today? Where would Europe be today? It's an interesting question. Because there's such evil at that time that I believe it took force. Okay? Uh, and it took a response like that. Now, that's just me. You may have a different opinion. That's okay. Uh, so I haven't gotten there. But that all said, <laughs> all that said, I don't think presidents and prime ministers, bombs and armies are going to change the future of the Middle East. If you and I were in the office, the Oval Office, tomorrow, it was you, me, whatever your party, what are we going to do? <laughs> How are we going to fix it? There's no easy fix. Okay? These are deep-seated, generational things, and Satan's in the middle of it, too. Divider, the chief divider, chief liar. But Muslims are just people, and most of them are cultural Muslims, especially if they live here in the United States and around, and they've read less of the Quran than I have, and I'm no expert. They're just people. You know, they're just people. Um, we learn about them. We've got to learn about them, build relationships, uh, be ready to give an answer of, of your hope that's in you. As it says First Peter, focus on Jesus. Uh, you say, oh, I don't know lots of theology. I don't know Islam. I'm afraid to talk to Muslims because they might want to debate theology. Most of them aren't going to want to debate theology. I don't know as much theology as a pastor. Fine, I don't either. You don't have to, okay? What you need to know is have confidence in your own faith. Be ready to answer to give hope that's in you. Why are you a Christian? Why are you still a Christian? Why do you come to church? What do you get out of this? What impact does it make in your own life? You can, you're the only authority on that. Okay? Your own testimony. You're the, you're, you're the authority. Nobody else in the world has that that you have. That, they want what the millennials, the kids, what they call authenticity. Just be authentic. You transform the Middle East, North Africa, Muslims in the West too, by engagement and evangelism. You get to know them. You say, how do I get to know uh, my Muslim neighbor? Well, if you have a Muslim neighbor. If you don't, you eventually will. And I don't mean that in the sense of, ooh, they're coming. I just mean that in terms of demographic change. Uh, let's turn it around. Let's say you have a Muslim neighbor, and he knocks on your door, and he says something vulgar about Jesus. <laughs> First thing, I mean, he's, are you going to want to be his friend? No, you're going to think he's crazy, afraid of him? Uh, no. Uh, do it the other way. You say, well, he's going to go down there and knock on his door, and as soon as he opens the door, you, you insult Muhammad. No, 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 no. <laughs> Stay away from that. You don't have to talk about that. You get down there and help them with a mower. You know? You take her a plate of cookies. Not a ham, a plate of cookies. <laughs> okay? And uh, you learn a little bit. You ask questions. They're just people. Why are they in the United States? Same reason your predecessors came. They're looking for a better life. Why do they come to the West? If the West is so bad, if the U.S. is so bad, why do they come? Any, uh, any Latino, Mexican, any immigrant, why, why are they coming? Send me your tired, your poor, your huddle masses, your name can breathe free. But, I mean, come on. These people, they focus, you know, build bridges. And you think about the Middle East, this. They're not as resistant as we think they are. 
They just haven't heard. They just haven't heard. You know, how shall they hear without a preacher? Uh, I don't mean formally a pastor. I mean us speaking the word of God and supporting missions and investing in missions in any way in the great commission of who God is. Um, I don't want to be like Jonah. Okay. I don't want to do it Jonah's way. Jonah eventually did it, but I don't want to do it his way. Okay. Peter and Paul had a lot more fun doing it their way. Doing that. Paul, if he were living today, Apostle Paul would, I hate to say it that this way, he'd be killed for it because he wouldn't kill. But he'd pay a lot of money, put it that way, to have satellite television. <laughs> I mean, Paul traveled, right? And he got shipwrecked and he got snake bitten and his life was threatened and he had all these things. Why? To share the gospel with Gentiles. He would have given a lot of money to sit in an air conditioned studio behind a microphone and a TV and just talk to the world. I mean, he, he, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Okay. He would have done that. So we have tools today for such a time as this. Usual and unusual that God has given us in his sovereignty where he's put theology and timeliness and technology together to do what we need to do. Well, God bless you.